Before we continue, one of the ways we keep all of our content for you, the listener, free of charge is our amazing sponsors, and today, Anchor is one of those sponsors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcasts right from your phone or computer. Anchor is going to distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are listened to, and you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Eric Bischoff joins us live to talk Clash of the Champions 27. You listen to them. Now hang out with us. This is After 83 Weeks with Christy Olson. That's me. You're tuned in to AfterBuzz TV, the ESPN of TV talk. Now, let the buzz Hey there, 83 Weeks fans, and welcome to the show that is for you, where we break down all the big reveals, (laughs) the fun stories, and everything else about this episode of 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let me introduce you to my panel of... uh, Experts. I'm uh, <laughs> using little quotes for those of you who are yeah, for those who listening. There were air quotes with that. <laughs> Authorities. But this guy knows a thing or two. He is the host of AfterBuzz TV SmackDown After Show and a veteran of the wrestling business. Hello, Christian Rosenberg. Hello, Christy Olson. How are you? I am great, thank you. And this man right next to you, we call him the Encyclopedia of Professional Wrestling, George Ramosa. Hello, everyone. This is the part where you say hello back. Hi. Wow, that oh, was hi. such pleasantries. Hello back. <laughs> Hello back. And uh, last but definitely not least, he runs the YouTube channels for almost all of your favorite wrestling veterans. It's Steve Kaufman. Hello, my name is Steve, and I've been sober for two years. Good for this you. Is, <laughs> this is not... Oh! It's not AA. Oh, this... That's my Wednesday. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do we all have to say how long it's been since we've had a drink? No. Okay, good. Hold on, hold on. on. What is currently in the cup? (laughs) On that note, I mean, we have fun here, people. So obviously you want to hit that subscribe button, maybe give us a little thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube and join the live chat. We air Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific time. And you can also catch us on Apple Podcasts. Please uh, like, rate, and comment. Let us know what you love about this show. And we'll give you a shout-out because we like to do that. And this week, of course, we're covering Clash of Champions 27. We always roll it back and take another look look at uh, at the pay-per-view and guys this uh should we i mean eric thought that this was a better pay-per-view than uh, some others did what was your general opinion going into this one were you like yes finally we get to talk clash of champions 27 it, it was good but real quick uh he because he, he kind of started off by talking about the great american Bash 99 and yeah. kinda, i actually want to know what you guys thought about like whether or not wcw made stars like mysterio guerrero malenko benoit and all the above like i think wcw totally made those stars and like to the point where wwf they had a chance to sign up but they never did in the I, same I, I, I agree with Bischoff in, in his assessment of that. I agree in the sense that NXT makes stars. You can make a star. It's what you do once you make a star. The WCW, I don't want to say failed at, but like struggled with. Well, it's not the My question is they made those stars. You're not they, wrong. They, they, like, made they, like in, they introduced them to if us. If anything, somebody like Benoit did, had a dark match in 95 with Ted DiBiase in his corner, and they didn't sign him. Mm-hmm. WCW signed him, made him star to the point where WWF came pretty much... You know, like when they got the radicals, it's like, oh my god, like this gold mine in us. You know, same thing with Jericho and, and Mysterio. Like, I so I just completely agree. I completely agree with what Bischoff said in the beginning of the episode. I like how we start in the episode trying to kiss up to Eric Bischoff. I think that's pretty. And then we're gonna get him on live in a few minutes, and Eric and George is gonna rip him apart. With there you go. Hogan, I just have weird questions. Does. <laughs> you weird questions. But, but as far as Clash of the Champions, honestly, just overall, because we haven't really covered a Clash of the Champions, I, no. I think in a while um, or ever. But I always liked these shows because it was like on TBS. 
Yes, it wasn't a pay-per-view. It was just like a special two-hour show that, you know, you never really saw. It, it was their it, Saturday Night's Main yeah, Event. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it was just always fun. Like, there was always... Because a lot of Saturday Night's Main Events, that was a little just kind of random matches. Like, uh, they had their... They built toward the pay-per-views. Clash of the Champions had a lot of storyline kind of... I mean, they had a unification bout on free TV, if anything. Yeah. Well, I think most people remember it as the arrival of Hulk Hogan and really mm-hmm. the beginning of the Hulk Hogan era. Yeah, I actually never saw this Clash of the Champions. So, like, over the weekend, I watched it for the very wow. first time. And I I remember watching be like, this is a really good episode of Nitro. Yeah, like, that's <laughs> I, what I felt. Like, as a pay-per-view, yeah. I didn't find this that strong. But as a Clash of the Champions, like, like there have been some dog yeah. Clash of the Champions. <laughs> like, like, okay, well, they, they had the promos like it would on Nitro. They had a squash match. It, it explained a new character. Right. But then, yeah, like, and then they had kind of like the special match. Obviously, the title unification match. Um, the U.S. title, tag titles, television titles, like... Well, this is a stacked card mm-hmm. for a non-pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes me wish that WWE tries to do one of these things once in a while, whether it's, you know, on a Fox affiliate when that comes in, or in USA or NBC. Not necessarily Saturday Night's main event, per se, but maybe if you do two or three of these a year that's on network TV instead of the network, mm-hmm. that could, you know, increase I think revenue. it's not the same. Like, it's just, there, there's too many non-squash matches. They tried that when they had Saturday Night's main event on NBC, like in 2006. It just wasn't the same. It just, it was a special time this time where, like, these shows were special. I know Saturday Night's main event wasn't around for, like, two years for at that time, but, like, the, the these kind of shows, like they were just fun to watch, mm-hmm. to the point where they couldn't do that anymore after 1997 because, again, Nitro was all in thunder. It was just there were no more squash matches anymore. Also, it's a minor nitpick of mine. Most Clash of the Champions in like the 38 or however many there have been had less than two title matches on them. So for this to have four title matches out of the five matches, I was like, oh, this is actually a Clash of Champions. I'm weird. We know this. Well, no, I mean, this was really all, and this show was really all about the championship. Eric and Conrad want us to reach out and let them know what we thought of the big gold belt. That's like a thing on Twitter that they're asking people about. So don't look perplexed. Tell me what you thought of the big gold belt and the unification the and all that jazz. The big gold belt's great. Big gold belt is one of the best belts, period. <laughs> it's funny because like a lot of people love that old school NWA title. I hate that belt. The NWA title? So I'm not ugly. crazy about the it. The one that ECW got and the one that Shane Douglas threw in the trash like around the same uh, time. Mm-hmm. Like I love the big gold belt. Like I, I don't I don't like the fact that it's not around anymore. Yeah. You know, it just completely, you know, became irrelevant after 2014 and it's like I, like so much history in that Only belt. because it made it to 2014 am I like, that That should just be lineage. Like, similar to how the Intercontinental title just still looks like the Intercontinental title, yeah. that there should just, there should be some things that just keep going for tradition's sake because they don't look gnarly. But at the same time, because, like, I like the, how awful the tag titles look right now and things like that. If you just brought, like, the regular ones back. Any, any <laughs> other tag belt, had that, the ECW tag belts with the barbed wire and fencing on them. I do, I did like the Any ECW. I thought the ECW tag belt, the one that looked like the Intercontinental Championship. I like those. Oh, ones. those are good. Yeah, mm. and that twenty four seven title. Oh god, the Waffle well, House title. I'm a big belt mark. Like not not as much as like Conrad to the point where I literally texted Dave Marquez today and said, "Your television championship is fucking gorgeous." All right, we have resorted to <laughs> name really dropping did. around here, so I think it's Trivia time to text. cut these gentlemen off and bring in one Eric Bischoff. <laughs> hey, that's a name drop dropper. right there. <laughs> oh look, you dropped that name. We're just yeah, gonna call Eric Bischoff. Pick it up. We are going to call him, and he will be on the line with us in just a minute, so stay tuned. Welcome back. Our special guest is joining us now, fresh off a tour from the land down under. Hello, Eric Bischoff. How you doing? 
I am doing great, and I just finished a Vegemite sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I remember all the Australian wrestlers talking about that. I tried it once. Not so delicious. There was a song, actually, about it. I come from the land down under. Remember that song? No. You, really? <laughs> what? You, how do you not know that song? You literally referenced it. Well, well, no. I, I, like I said, the wrestlers forced me to try it once. Oh boy! I mean, I wouldn't put it in a sandwich, but uh, maybe you discovered all kinds of new things there in your in your time in Australia. How was it? it you know what? I'll, I'll, kidding aside, I had so much fun that on my last day there, I, I woke up in the morning and I was actually borderline depressed that I had to leave. Oh, I was like, oh man, can't we just like do four or five more shows? What if we just jump over to New Zealand and do a couple shows over there? <laughs> you know, it was so much fun. The people were great. The fans were awesome. There's just something about Australia that reminds me of what the United States was probably like about, you know, 50 or 60 years ago. Everybody was very optimistic. And they don't get a lot of uh, wrestling personalities over there mm-hmm. that often. So when they do, it's like, you know, kind of felt like Elvis a little bit. Hey. Not that the crowd, you know, the small crowds, but they just were so appreciative and respectful that it, it just made it so much fun. I did see you getting a lot of love on social media from the people that were at the shows, and they, they said it was incredible. It was a fun show, because, you know, the, when you do a sh- when I do a show like that, I'll speak for myself, you know, it's a one-man show, you're up there by yourself. The first show uh, that, that I did, the first night was in Sydney, and, I, you know, I told the promoters, you know, it's, it's going to be a 90-minute show. I gave them the format. So this is what it's going to be. It ended up being two and a half hours. <laughs> and, and I didn't want to leave. I mean, the only reason we left is because they had to close the building. Oh, wow. You know, I just didn't want to leave. It was so much fun. And <clears throat> the next night was in Brisbane. Or as we say here in the States, Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> they hate that. <laughs> <laughs> but that show was in a smaller venue, standing room only. There were no seats. And everybody stood for like an hour and a half. And we, we had so much fun. And my last night in Melbourne was just, I knew it was my last night. And I knew it might be the last one I do in a while. So I just went, you know what? I'm going to blow this one out. I had a set list of songs <laughs> about 20 minutes before I went out. Like, Rap really is crap at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. I, my intro music was Sympathy for the Devil by Rolling Stones. <laughs> just was, and I came out from the back of the crowd, grabbed the beer from somebody in the audience, <laughs> stood up on a chair and chugged the beer in front of the crowd. It was so much fun. I just had a blast. You found your inner Sandman in your entrance is what you're saying. I did. And you know what? I, I actually, if, if the opportunity came up to move to Australia, like tomorrow, I could be there by Friday. Wow, well, they got Skype there, so that works for us. <laughs> well, while you were while you were there meeting up with all the fans, we were being entertained back here with this week's episode of 83 Weeks, covering the Clash of Champions 27. Uh, I'm sure it's been a while since you recorded it, so just to refresh your memory. <laughs> so I'm going to jump right in with a question here, something that I've kind of been dying to know, because you've talked a little bit about how you were quite approving of uh, Cactus Jack at the time's antics. And I'm wondering if there was any behind the scenes who thought that WCW needed that edginess that he brought or who really fought for him to be able to keep doing those things? Was there anybody who was kind of on his team as far as that goes? 
No, on the contrary. Most of the input that I got about Cactus at the time was from people above me. Um, risk management, which if, if anybody's worked in a corporate environment, you know, there's a whole division of people that are basically lawyers that, you know, assess risks. And what's going to happen if this happens? You know, they just, they spend their whole lives worrying about the sky falling. Hmm. And there were a lot of people worried about mixed style and the risk that not only that he put himself through, but the audience as well, you know, jumping off balconies and things like that, table shot, all the crazy stuff that he did was not only a huge risk to himself, but potentially to other people. And the input that I got was like, we got to tone it down. So, And aside from the physical risk, was there any concern that him doing those things would make the rest of the show maybe lackluster? No, because at that time he was so unique. You know, Mick Foley was, you know, Terry Funk was probably one of the first, you know, really super extreme kind of performers. But Mick was, in terms of our contemporaries at that point in time, Mick was the guy that was like known for doing that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And he was the only one. It was an oddity. It was a unique, you know, presentation. He was the only one doing it. And, you know, a lot of the audience loved it. And it set the tone for what I think, you know, became, you know, ECW and, you know, hardcore divisions and WCW and, you know, WWE and all the crazy things that went on after that. But Mick was the pioneer, but he was the only one. Not a lot of other guys, maybe the Nasty Boys yeah. like that kind of stuff, but even the Nasty Boys wouldn't go to the extreme that, that Mick Foley went to. So to switch wrestling styles you've mentioned on multiple occasions your love of the european style of wrestling match including what you would find from lord Stephen regal on this episode i think people are wondering if you've ever actually caught nxt uk i have not you know i'm not gonna lie uh i have not but i, I but i will uh i've heard a lot about it you know, every 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 time i go to one of these events whether it's in australia or you know something here in the u.s or in the uk it's the first thing everybody asks me about. Have you seen, you know, NXT UK? <laughs> and I haven't. And I feel guilty enough now that I'm almost compelled to. <laughs> P- Patreon. Walter versus Pete Dunn. There you go. Book it. <laughs> kind of a three-part question kind of revolving around the international championship. Because oh, a lot that was the big gold belt. So was there like a like an outlook from the company thinking that this was another world championship? And also, like, was there, was there a little bit of relief? when you guys have unified it and one more question is the big, <laughs> the, the big gold belt whether it's you know now or in your tenure of WCW were there ever any uh, ideas of maybe switching up the big gold belt whether it's enhancing it or making it maybe new and approved just you know keeping that style but just maybe making tweaks to the big gold belt at all you know I'll start with your last question first and work my way back uh, there was never any real consideration I mean I think everybody in WCW at that time, because of their relationship with formerly the, the NWA and tradition and history, all really liked the big gold belt. I know I did, because to me, you know, as, as a kid growing up as a boxing fan, you know, the, the belts were never that showy, that glittery, glittery. They were, not, you know, it just didn't have that pizzazz that a lot of belts have now. They were just, they were more traditional. The big gold belt to be as big as it was, it still represented the kind of tradition and history of, of the industry. 
So I know I really loved it. And there was nobody at that time. That was before, you know, not a lot of people put the emphasis on the look of the belt at that point. It was the belt itself, the achievement of it that was the most important. But I love the big gold belt. That was number one. I already forgot number two. (laughs) Just because, did you guys look at the international championship as like another world title? And was a relief when you guys actually unified it? That way you had just finally one champion that, you know. That's a great question. That's a great question. The answer answer is yes. I I always, and still do to this day, have a real issue with a multitude of belts. You know, because to me a belt represents stakes. It represents a goal. It represents a huge challenge, like the Super Bowl, the NBA championship, the Stanley Cup, whatever it is. And the more of those championships you have, collectively, in my opinion, just mine, (laughs) in my opinion, the less any of them mean. So I understood why we had the international, you know, world heavyweight championship because it was really important for us to try to create something special for the European tours. That was the reason for it. It wasn't just so we could add another belt. It was a specific reason for it. But the more you do that, the more it convolutes, really, the value of the belt and therefore the meaning of the stakes associated with them. So I was, I personally was relieved when we combined them. From from a from a storytelling point of view, and I know other people will have different opinions, and that's cool. You know, we're all here because we have different opinions about things. But for me personally, the less belts, the better. I, f- I feel like Christy's having PTSD for how much we're saying belts. <laughs> yeah, don't you know that's a naughty that's a naughty word, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> the championship. All right, did did you get all of your parts answered? <laughs> Yes. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. I didn't want to interrupt. Were you not paying sure. attention? Yeah, you, you had like a 19-part question, so I wanted to make sure. Uh, let's let's switch gears to Sherry, because uh, obviously she was heavily featured in, in, in this week's podcast, uh, because the main story of the Clash of Champions really was who was going to be her new client and the story on it. So I was wondering, because obviously we've heard you in the past and on this week constantly praise Sherry and how she was such a unique talent. I was curious if there was anyone, whether it's WWE AEW, TNA, if there's anyone that you've seen to be like, oh, you know what? They they got a little bit of Sherry in her. Anyone you would compare to Sherry? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Becky Lynch. And I know every week I go on here and I'm putting over <laughs> Becky Lynch. That's okay. But so you compare her, so you see a lot of Sherry in Becky. I see a lot of Here's what I see in here's what I saw in Sherry and here's what I see in Becky. Sherry was able to she was a strong, powerful character. She could play just about any role she needed to play. She was a very uh, versatile character. She could be a vixen. She could be very sensuous if she needed to be. She could be tough as nails if she needed to be. She could perform outside of the ring. She was a great interview. She was a great promo. And if you, if need be, you could put her in the ring and she could have a hell of a match. I don't know. Is there anybody else you guys could think of other than Becky Lynch that would fit that, fit that bill right now? 
I mean, for me personally, I mean, if you look at Sherry's physicality, I think they're like Selena Vega. Like to me, just just not a, not being afraid to kind of get in there and get her hands dirty. No, but she and, and I agree with you absolutely, hundred percent. But could she also carry a promo? Could she also was she as versatile as Sherry? She That's, could, but not as good as Sherry. <laughs> Sherry, no, no, Sherry's like uh, to be fair to Selena Vega, Sherry's like top two like female on the mic ever. So I, I, I agree. And you know what? Here's what I, and I said this you know on eighty three weeks and I. I don't want to get like emotional about it, but I really wish I would have recognized it as much then as I do now. It's it's one of the downfalls of being in the middle of it. And you know, I, I've said this before, you know, when things were going great, 96, 97, 98, things were going great, I felt like I was on a treadmill at about 12 miles an hour. You know, like at three and a half miles an hour, four miles an hour, I'm pretty good. Yeah. I keep up a nice pace. I can actually take a phone call. <laughs> I can watch TV. I can actually carry on a conversation. You get the thing up to about six and a half, seven miles an hour, I'm not, I can't talk. I'm just concentrating on surviving and breathing and keeping my heart from stopping. At 12 miles an hour, if you even look down at your feet for a second, you're going to crash. You're going to look like something on America's Funniest Home Videos. And that's what I felt like in 96, 97, and 98. I felt like I was on a 12-mile-an-hour treadmill where things were happening so quickly you never had a chance to really stop and evaluate them or look at them as much as I would have liked to in retrospect. And Sherry kind of fell in that era where things were all happening so fast, there were so many big things happening that you, I tended not to appreciate them to the extent that I should have. And that's what I feel bad about because she was so talented. I just can't say enough great things about her. Well, and uh, this includes Sherry, but really almost every female talent that we talk about on this show passed away from an overdose. Do you think that there was less concern back in the day with helping female talent overcome addiction? Or this is just something I spent a lot of time thinking about and wondering why have we lost so many of these top women to addiction? Any any light you can shed on that? I can't shed any light. I mean, I can give you an opinion. I don't know that it's light or or an intelligent perspective, but I think if you take the male-female delineation out of the equation, Mm -hmm. I think... 80s, 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s, none of us were paying enough attention to addiction. None of us were paying attention to lifestyle. It was, it was, it was rock and roll. I don't think there was any difference between wrestling and addiction, whether it was male or female, and rock and roll mm-hmm. in addiction. You know, we, we've all, you know, Janis Joplin, you know, died from an overdose, you know, so many, so many rock and roll stars died of overdoses in the seventies and the eighties, because none of us were paying close enough attention to what the lifestyle and how it manifests and and the adverse sides of that affected people. It was just like, you're living for the moment. You're living in the moment. You're living for the day. You're living for the party. You know, go back and watch. You know, one of the things that I started watching recently, uh, late night on television, is reels, and yeah. you, you, a lot of biographies. You know, Rolling Stones, Van Morrison, you know, The Doors, 
so many people, Joe Cocker, look at the lives of those rock stars back in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. That was before anybody was paying attention to drugs. We all knew it was going on. We all knew it was bad, but not how bad. And we lost a lot of people, male and female. And I, I don't look at it as why weren't we paying more attention to how you know, drugs and, and the lifestyle was affecting women versus how is it affecting men. We look at it that way now because we're kind of conditioned in today's, in today's politically correct environment to do that. But everybody was getting, you know, sucked into that lifestyle. So if someone said, well, if it was one of the boys, they would have been seen as more marketable and someone would have bothered to save them or help them. You don't, you wouldn't agree with that? No, no, because Sherry was one of the boys. She, she, of course, she was a female, and she was a very, she was a beautiful female. She had her own characteristics and her own personality and her own life, but she was one of the boys. She was no different than anybody else. You talk about equality. Sherry was the manifestation of equality in professional wrestling before equality was cool. She was, she fell victim to the same things that a lot of other people fell victim to. That's so interesting. Thank you. To pivot the conversation to something I talk about a lot, theme parks. <laughs> if WCW were a theme park ride, what kind well, of... <laughs> we're, uh, we're, we're taking a le- bit of a left turn, apparently. Steve, Steve is not on. the best with segues. That was a perfect segue. I said the words, and now we're here. <laughs> Drug overdoses to Magic Mountain. Yeah, right? How else do you get there? You just do it. Um, if WCW were a theme park ride, what kind of ride would it be, and why? Oh, I like that one, though. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is our first ever refusal to answer. Steve, I love you for setting this up. (laughs) Very cool guy. You work really hard to make all this stuff work. I really do respect you in many, many ways. That was the most fucking question ever. (laughs) I agree. Uh, okay. Um, cool. Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan. Um, you know, he. You know, a lot of a lot of this episode was, was talking about him and you know Hulk Hogan coming in. Uh, a couple months later, a lot of his friends came in. You know, Jim Duggan, uh, Avalanche, or Earthquake, John Tenta, Ed Leslie. Was that like just kind of Hogan saying, "Hey, brother, you know, I kind of want to see some of my friends come in," you know, because you know I know them, I know they can draw well, or was that management saying, "Hey, let's bring in some of these guys that Hogan is you know friends with, maybe to get him more comfortable"? Like, how does how does it get brought up to bring in some of these guys that you know worked with Hogan back in WWF? Not to be a dick, but I was management. There was no management above me telling me or suggesting to me what to do and what not to do. I I was. Kind of, I was running the ship. Uh-huh. So the decisions I made, good or bad, in this case, some of them pretty bad, <laughs> were, were mine and mine alone. I wasn't influenced by anybody other than what was in front of me at that point. And look, you got to be careful. I don't have to be careful. I want to be careful how I say this because things can be easily misinterpreted, especially when people see something like this online and then they kind of quote me according to the way they understood the quote. When Hogan came in, it had a major impact on the company. A lot of, a lot of wrestling fans didn't see it at, immediately. They were against it. Many wrestling fans were kind of against it. You know, hardcore WCW, former NWA wrestling fans were, you know, kind of 
up in arms about it. The mainstream wrestling audience around the rest of the United States took notice. And I had to nurture that. I had to build on that. I had to create that momentum. And part of that was managing Hulk Hogan. Now, Hulk felt strongly and, and deservedly so about the success of some of the people that he had worked with in the past. And he was anxious to bring some of those guys in. He didn't force them on me. It wasn't like hardcore negotiations, but it was a compromise in many respects between how do I keep this guy happy? How do I balance the roster? And let's go ahead and try and bring a couple of these guys in because they may be more over than I think they are. It may work better than I think it would. And here's here's a perfect example. Randy Savage was in the mind of most wrestling fans, washed up, retired, and relegated to an announce booth in WWE. His career was over. In the eyes of Vince McMahon, in the eyes of most wrestling fans, he was on his way out. He was announcer material, not performer material. Well, Hulk convinced me, along with others, to bring Randy in. And Randy went on to become a huge star that had a major impact on our success. So some of those acquisitions that came about as a result of Hulk Hogan worked extremely well. Some of them did not. It's probably no different than, you know, the roster you see today anywhere else you look at it. You know, whether it's WWE or AEW, a lot of the big stars that everybody's talking about, you know, coming into AEW, it's great now, but, you know, six months from now, a year from now, they may be gone. Maybe they weren't as popular as everybody thought they were going to be. You, d- you never know until you put them out there. Interesting. So, so along the lines with Hulk Hogan, because you were really kind of breaking down what so many people have said over the years as far as what was his contract like when he was first coming in as far as the bonuses and the incentives. And you, and you brought up how based on, you know, like additional pay-per-view profits, he'd be getting uh, 25% of it, which to me makes a lot of sense because all those profits are coming because they want to see what Hulk Hogan does. My question is that remaining 75%, do any of the wrestlers on the roster get any part of that? No, and Ooh, that's no, a good one. and that's a great question. Thank you very much for asking it. And there, therein lies the delineation and the difference between the way WWE or WWF at the time was structured and the way WCW was structured. You got to keep in mind, WCW was a new company. Mm-hmm. WCW had no licensing. It had no revenue from licensing and merchandising. They had no revenue from pay per view to speak of because our pay per view sucked at the time. Nobody was really making any money. WWF had, you know, they were a 30-year-old company back in the mid-90s. They had a history and a track record. And if you were a wrestler and you came to WWF, somebody in WWF would be able to say, look, here's what this wrestler did. You know, mid-card on WrestleMania, this this wrestler got a check for $75,000 as a, as a profit-sharing opportunity. Or this wrestler makes $200,000 a year on their merchandise. WCW had no profit sharing in pay-per-view because we weren't making any money. WCW had no licensing and merchandising to share. So we had to, as a result, we had to guarantee their income. What we couldn't share with them, we had to guarantee guarantee them. So 
there was no sharing of, you know, incremental pay-per-view revenue. Their contracts just weren't set up that way. You came to work for WCW and you said, okay, I'll commit to 180 days a year. And in exchange for that, you're going to pay me as a point of reference, 250 grand a year. It wasn't 250 grand a year plus a percentage because we didn't have the formula to do that. Does that make sense? It, it makes sense. So then I guess my question is, though, and correct me if I'm wrong, were you still doing that contract plus the incentive for Hogan then or, or no? Was he the one exception then? Hogan was the one exception. But Hogan's exception, he only got paid based on an incremental amount right. of revenue based on what we had already been doing according to the baseline yeah. of, of a two-year track record. So in other words – if we average, let's say, our, our, you know, when Hogan came on board, I think we we're only doing four, maybe six pay-per-views a year. Let's say it was four. Mm-hmm. If our four pay-per-views a year generated two million dollars a year to the bottom line, well, that's not realistic. Generated four million dollars a year to the bottom line. If Hogan came on board and he was involved in those four pay-per-views, and now those four pay-per-views generated six million dollars in pay-per-view revenue then he was paid 25 percent of the additional of the additional million yeah yeah so basically he fucking ate what he killed (laughs) (laughs) see if you just said that from the beginning that wouldn't happen it's like a caveman go out you kill a fucking buffalo you get to drag the buffalo in and eat it there you go Wow. Uh, well, kind of uh, going off of that very violent imagery, uh, we all remember <laughs> oh, where we were. <laughs> all right, but again, with the segues. So we're talking about O.J. Simpson. Uh, you were actually at Shaq's house watching O.J. in his Bronco with Shaq. I have to know, what was Shaq's response to O.J. kind of being on this high-speed chase and the fact that he was uh, being uh, questioned for a murder? I don't think uh, Shaq's reaction was any different than any of the rest of us. We were all stunned. It was almost surreal. No, it wasn't almost surreal. It was surreal to the point where you couldn't you couldn't believe it was actually happening. Like during that time, we're all we were in Shaq's house. He had a nice nice house. His dad was there. He had two or three of his buddies there, um, and we're all you know, kind of centered around the television watching this together, nobody said a word. It was just like you couldn't believe that was happening. Wow. And again, context is king. Go back to the, you know, nineteen ninety-four, you know, that whole, you know, follow the traffic scene, you know, eye in the sky thing was still kind of a new new gimmick. Yeah. Yeah. Um the fact that it was O. J. Simpson was it was mind-boggling. I think everybody, all of us, none of us felt any differently. We were all like, I can't believe this was happening. And actually, we got done shooting that that video, and then I had to get out of the plane to get back to Los Angeles right away. And I got back to Los Angeles, and the first thing I did when I got to my hotel room was turn on the news, and it was, you know, follow-ups and repeats and replays and everything on CNN. It was still... It was amazing. You know, not amazing isn't the right word. It was mind boggling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So in 94, WCW accidentally aired a spoiler to Clash of the Champions 27 that we just watched. Don't throw any furniture, Eric. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> what, what things have you done? Wow, all right. <laughs> she, she said, don't throw things. <laughs> what precautions did WCW take after that moment to not only protect tapes being, from being played, but match finishes, storylines, the, the entire creative process? What kind of protections, security-wise, were there for, from leaks? Well, not so much. That wasn't a leak. That was just a fuck-up. There's a difference. Um, everybody got a lot more serious about continuity, because that's what that was. It was just people... You guys know. You know. You work together. You're in business. You do this stuff. If you don't communicate properly, just things fall apart. Sometimes they're little things. Sometimes they're big things. Um, in our case... Again, we were ramping up. We were starting to move pretty fast. Um, we were all of a sudden doing things that we had never done before. And there were people that really weren't that experienced in communicating and managing their own stuff. And it fell through the cracks. It's just, it happens. Um, but it wasn't leaks. And I, I think everybody, you know, here's, here's the deal. The production staff, especially in WCW, especially the production staff, were very hardworking and loyal people. They probably put more pressure on themselves than I put on them. They really wanted to live up to their to the expectations at that time. They felt horrible. And honestly, they fixed it themselves. I mean, I, I did what I had to do in terms of letting everybody know how disappointed I was. But that staff, that post-production staff at the time, Craig Leathers, Neil Pruitt, Annette Yoder, um, Kemper Rogers, you know, Woody Kearse. So many of those people were, they were such hardworking pros. They were more embarrassed by their failure and their mistake than I could have made them feel. So I didn't need to come down hard on them. They kind of corrected themselves, really. Well, before we let you go, I know George is dying to do his great white shark impression for you. <laughs> I thought uh, we could all do so, one. No. I thought we can all do one, and then you can say which one's the best one. No, nope, I'll go you. first. I'll go first. What the hell was that? Yeah, that was my great, that's what Sting did. I watched the Sting promo back. He's like, the great white shark. Rah, 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 rah. Is, this, is this the way that you're trying well, to get a win over gonna me? If you're not going to do it, then you're then, yeah, no, yeah, If you're is, not going to do it, then, then not, don't even, you, can't, you can't say anything. Everybody's got to do it. No, do it. <laughs> All right, Steve. <laughs> Kristen. That sucked, brother. <laughs> I don't really understand what we're doing. We're throwing it, so we're doing um, it. Yeah, I'll, I'll try. <laughs> that was a good one. You guys are fucking horrible. <laughs> yeah, we are. We are. And, and more, in more reasons than just that. I love you, and thank you very much for doing this again another week. I can't wait till next week. This has been fun. (laughs) (laughs) Us too. Thank you so much, Eric. Enjoy your time back home, and we will see you next week. Take care. The love. (laughs) Oh, you got. You just had to do it. So we didn't pick an official winner. Therefore, 
I am still undefeated. All right, I'll give you that. That wasn't a sanctioned game. No, it wasn't. <laughs> an un, an unsanctioned game. Well, if they want to reach out to you about your impressions, or you know, we didn't get a ton of time to talk about Clash of Champions 27 tonight. Where can people do that? At Christian Rosenberg. Follow me on Twitter at Ro Rosenberg. Instagram the Ro Rosenberg. slash Christian Rosenberg. Wrestling Pro Wrestling. Brian Kendrick is happening this Friday night in Burbank. Twitch.tv slash Wrestling Pro Wrestling. Are you okay, Steve? Eric kind of tore you into that roller coaster question. Uh, you can follow me at GHermoz at GHERMOZA. <laughs> what he said about Wrestling Pro Wrestling this Friday night, you can see it on Twitch TV the following Thursday. I'm Steve Kaufman. You can find me on Twitter almost exclusively at Steve Kaufman. That is K-U-F-M-A-N-N. Eric cannot hurt me no more than YouTube has hurt me <laughs> by demonetizing Bruce Pritchard's YouTube page. Well, Hopefully you, don't, there's a you don't sound bitter at all. I they took my profession away. It's a whole thing. <laughs> it's and, my livelihood. Uh, speaking of bitter, I'm Christy Olson, and you can <laughs> always hit me up at Christy Reports. I love it. Next week, we will be talking Bash at the Beach 1998. That's going to be good, and we will see you right back here. Uh, have a good week. Our founder, Kevin Undergaro, and me, Maria Menunos, would like to thank you for tuning in to AfterBuzz TV. Remember, we're not just the first, we're the biggest in the world, and we're the only destination for all your favorite TV shows. Whatever you crave, we've got it. So go to AfterBuzzTV.com and check out our lineup. Buzz you later. <laughs> the views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principal.